morning. Welcome to Creekside, if it's, uh, and thank you for the safety presentation. Last week it was torrential rain at the end of the service, and uh, thankful to my brother Ryan Carter who was ferrying us back and forth uh, to our cars during that time. Thank you, Ryan. Kids, you're dismissed to uh, Sunday school. Your teachers are in the back. So at, uh, at our Wednesday night kids program, Awana, we practice the safety drills as well, and we call it rat race. I don't know where Awana came up with that name, but we kind of circle them in a circle and lead them to where they're supposed to go quickly. Um, speaking of Awana, um, we're done with the Awana year, but as I had an opportunity to preach this week, as uh, Steve is out, he's uh, attending his youngest daughter's share his graduation activities up in Albert City, and Kyle's out of town this weekend, and so I have the privilege of bringing the word, uh, continuing in our series of characters in the Bible who were important, uh, important because of who God made them to be and what he did through them in the lives of other people. And Last week, uh, Kyle talked about Mary. Uh, Mary was an important person, the mother of Jesus. He talked about her proper importance, though. You know, some churches elevate her to almost a saint-godlike status, but when what we see in the Bible is she was, a, she was an extraordinary young godly woman. Uh, as the angel said, a, a woman to be honored among women, but not above women. And uh, we even see in her prayer, praise before Elizabeth, that she praised God for her Savior. She was also an ordinary woman. First um, Samuel 25 today, and last week I think what impressed me most about Mary was her knowledge of Scripture. And what's called the Magnificat is she quotes from five different Old Testament prophets. And at such a young age, as a young teenager, could quote so fluidly from the Old Testament like that. Just think if we raised families like that for our families and our kids to know the Word of God like Mary did. Well, today we look at 1 Samuel 25. It's a chapter I picked on the life of David and Abigail, a lesson in mercy. And Ryan Carter and I went through the life of David with the Awana kids, the K through 5th grades, and our lessons with them this year. And there's, David is covered more than any other Old Testament saint. There's 60 chapters devoted to the life of David. And one of the chapters that really was my favorite this year, I mean, of all the stories of David you could think of, of David and Goliath, where he slew the giant, of David being chosen as the next king and anointed with oil by the prophet Samuel over his seven older brothers from, the, from Jesse, of him being the war hero conquering the Philistines, of David and Bathsheba, all the different stories that are famous this story, tucked away in 1 Samuel 25, is my favorite, I think. David, Abigail, and also Nabal. As we start into this chapter, we see at the beginning that the prophet Samuel has died. Uh, Samuel anointed Saul to be their first king over Israel. And then Saul, who was disobedient to the Lord, uh, grieved the Lord's heart. And so God chose another man after his own heart. And he sent Samuel to anoint David to be the next king. But David's not king yet. In fact, Saul is so jealous over David that he is pursuing him, hounding him, seeking to destroy his life. And so David, after the death of Samuel, we're told, goes down with his men. He has, he's attracted a bunch of malcontents, soldiers, warriors on the run, unhappy men, and somehow all these men have kind of come around him, and he has 600 of them following him now, and they go down to this wilderness of Paran. It's a desert area. It's on the border of Israel, and when you're on the border of Israel back in that day, 
by the Philistines and the Malachites, what would happen is the Philistines and the Malachites would come over and raid the livestock and farms of the Israelites. And so if soldiers were stationed along there or groups of men like this that David had, they would often protect those farmers. And then there was this concept of reciprocity where the soldiers would protect the farmers and then in return the farmers would often provide them food and clothing and perhaps shelter. And this is what happens in this story today. We come across this wealthy man named Nabal. Nabal's a wealthy man. And in verse 7, uh, David talks about how his, shepherd, their, his shepherds were with them and we didn't hurt them and there wasn't anything missing from them. All the while they were in Carmel. And Nabal's own men even testified to Nabal's wife later on in verses 15 and 16. David's men were very good to us. We were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us both night and day. All the time they were with us keeping the sheep. So David and his 600 men were like a wall around a city protecting this wealthy man Nabal's farms and his flocks and his shepherds. And then there came a time for payday. So Nabal would take his sheep into Carmel once a year and shear the sheep, and this was like the big payday. You know, it's like if you got paid once a year, and it all came at once, and it's this great time of celebration and feasting, it's the big payday. And David is thinking when he hears about this that this is also a chance for my men to get some of the food they really need, some of the clothing they really need. And it was kind of a reasonable expectation that he would have that. In verse 4 it says, David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, and so he sends ten men to collect their rightful compensation for the good they had done. David's men are in need, and this is a reasonable thing to ask. It's a big payday for Nabal. Nabal, in verse 8, calls it a feast day or a celebration day, a day of rejoicing and celebration. And so David sends out his men to see what they can get. Let's look at verses 4 to 9. When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you, peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Your shepherds were with us. We did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them. All the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we, will come on, we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son David. So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David, and they waited. I'm reading out of the New Living, Living Translation this morning. I usually study and preach out of the New King James, but sometimes in a narrative passage like this, I like to read out of the New Living Translation for the fluidity and smoothness of the, of the passage here. And as we look at this story, there's really three main characters. First, we have Nabal, the farmer, the, the wealthy man who owns the farms on the border of Israel. And then we have his wife, Abigail, who says she's a beautiful and sensible woman. She is a wise woman and a beautiful woman. And then we have David, the, the soldier, the warrior, who's on the run from King Saul. And let's look first at this rich farmer named Nabal for a few minutes. First of all, he, we know he was rich. It says in verse 2 that there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. He lived in one city and had business in another. That uh, speaks to his wealth. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He had a lot of employees, and his wife even had five 
servants herself, we read later on. So he was a rich man. But he was also a harsh and evil man. We see in verse 3 that the man was harsh and evil in all his doings. In contrast to his wife Abel, which says she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. i got to think that must have been an arranged marriage to have those two people together like that. Well, then, if you want to know what a man's really like, you can ask the people who work for him. Ask his employees. Employees are usually happy to talk about their bosses. Employees, his Nabal's employees say in verse 17, he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. That's not a very good endorsement. And if you really want to know what a man's like, you can ask his wife and find out a lot of insight. The testimony of his wife as she pleads with David to have mercy on Nabal later on, she says, please, Lord, Let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. And she says in the next verse, Let your enemies and those who seek harm be as Nabal, meaning let them be cursed as Nabal is. That's not a very good endorsement from his wife as as well. And so what we gather is Nabal is a crude man. He's an ill-tempered man. He's unreasonable. He's a fool. And that's what his name actually means, is fool, Maybe that, I don't know if that was his birth name or not, but Nabal actually means fool. Now, when you name your kids, you uh, need to take good care. When we named our kids, you look in the names book and you find a good name with a good meaning. And the Bible says a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, right? But you do have to watch out for certain things. You know, you don't want a child's name to end up with the initials KKK or something like that. We, we came close in our last one, KJK, Kayla Joanna Klein. But uh, you got to watch out for a name, and a good name is to be chosen. And Nabal, maybe that wasn't his birth name, but that's what everybody called him at this point, which meant fool. Everybody recognized it. And so he's an unreasonable man. And when Nabal's answer to David's request is, who is David and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away, each one from his master. Shall I, take, shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears? And give it to men who I don't know where they are from. So David's young men turned on their heels and went back and they came and told David all these words. You know, Nabal knew exactly who David was. He says, who is this son of Jesse? He knew who he was. He knew he was the king-elect. But in a very rude way, he he insults him as a runaway. He insults his men as who knows where these guys even came from. He says he's a son of Jesse. He's uh, And then... Most of all, though, the insult is that he's very ungrateful. Nabal's ungrateful for David's protection all that time. He attributes his bread and his water and his meat to his own success. He says, it's my bread, my water, my meat, my shearers. I've achieved all this. When, in fact, it was David with his men out there that protected them day and night. Nabal was crude. He was mean. He's a fool. No one can even reason with him. And so we'll call Nabal the foolish farmer. The Bible has a lot to say about fools like Nabal. And in a few select verses here I've pulled out, Ecclesiastes 10.3 says, Even when a fool walks along the way, he lacks wisdom, and he shows everyone that he's a fool. It's pretty evident. It doesn't take much time to observe someone in their speech and their lifestyle to know if they're a fool. Proverbs 10.23 says, To do evil is like sport to a fool. Proverbs 15.2 says, The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of fools pours forth foolishness. You see that in the life of Nabal here, and you probably know a Nabal in your life 
somebody who's stubborn, ill-tempered, who's crude, who's unreasonable. You can't even talk sense into the person. Maybe it's your neighbor, maybe it's someone you work with or someone you work for or that wayward child. But you know a fool in your life. You know a Nabal. This verse in Proverbs 26.1, I had an opportunity to teach vividly to my children not too long ago. It's actually a disgusting verse. Proverbs 26.11 says, As a dog returns to his own vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. And my dog illustrated that for my children, and I had a chance to teach them a verse from Proverbs 26.11. But, you know, as disgusting that as that is, and as foolish as it would seem, why, dog, would you do that? that com- it compares that to a fool who repeats his folly. That's a Nabal here. So be careful how you live, Ephesians 5 says. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Do we have any Nabals here? Anyone who's stubborn or can't be reasoned with, you don't listen, uh, you, you have your mind set on something and you're not going to change your mind even if somebody else has a good point or may be right. Don't live like fools. Live like those who are wise. Enter David. Now, what do you think David's response is to Nabal sending his ten men away in disgrace like that and giving them nothing for all that work they had done protecting his livestock? Well, if you were, if you were reading through 1 Samuel and looking at the life of David up to this point, you might just think David's just going to forgive the man, let it go, move on, show mercy, and just trust in the Lord to provide another way. Because after all, just in the chapter right before this, when Saul was chasing David to kill him, Saul brought 3,000 of his choice men with him to hunt down David and kill him. That was kind of overkill. But God arranged such a thing that, David, that Saul had to, it says, relieve himself in a cave at a certain time. I had to explain that to the Iwana kids, and they picked up on that pretty quick. Saul, at a certain time, had to relieve himself in a cave, and it happened to be the very cave where David was hiding out. David had a prime opportunity to take Saul's life and end the madness of him being chased down and become the king right then, but he didn't. He had mercy on Saul. And so you would, might think that David would just have mercy on Nabal after an incident just like that. But what we see is that David becomes angry, full of anger, where it clouds out his judgment, where he's no longer seeing things through a godly and right perspective, but he's full of anger and wants to take revenge. And so he says, every man gird on his sword. So he takes 400 of his best men with swords to go take out Nabal and his household. We live in an angry, vengeful culture, don't we? Where people are just angry and sue happy. I mean, it doesn't take you long to figure that out if you don't leave a green a red light turning to green fast enough, or if you take too long at a drive-through ordering for a family of six, for example, or uh, any other situation in life where you are uh, holding someone back or insulting them and they're what they consider being insulting. Anybody who feels slighted, you see anger today. Lots of anger. We're full of anger in our culture. And you see that in David here. He's on his way to carry out a rage-filled execution. And it says in verses 21 to 22, as David's along the way, heading out there, he says, Surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him. And he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David. If I leave one male 
of all who belong to him by morning light. It's an ugly moment for David, isn't it? He's right that Nabal repaid him evil for good. So now does that make it right for David to repay evil for evil when he has experienced the mercy and protection of God so many times? And just as the Bible has a lot to say about fools, it has a lot to say about anger. In Proverbs 37, 8 to 9, Psalms, Psalms 37, 8 to 9, it says, Stop being angry. Turn from your rage. Do not lose your temper. It only leads to harm. For the wicked will be destroyed, but those who trust in the Lord will possess the land. Stop being angry. Turn from your rage. Do not lose your temper. The Bible commands us to do that. It only leads to harm. In Colossians 3.8 it says, now, But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Put them off, Christian. Ephesians 4.26 says, And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. Did you hear that? Don't let the sun set on your anger, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. And then James 1, it says, My dear brothers and sisters, you must be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. And then ultimately, we need to trust God with an unjust situation. That's what David should have done here. Put this all into the hands of God who is a just judge and who will repay. Romans 12, 17 says, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. But instead of overcoming evil with good here and letting the Lord repay Nabal, David's ready to repay evil with evil and take it into his own hands. And letting anger control us like this is sin. That's what the Bible calls it. It doesn't honor God. Are we sometimes like David here? It doesn't make sense sometimes, does it? Where in one moment we're like how he treated Saul, where we're showing mercy and kindness and we're putting the matter into the Lord's hands and seeing things from a godly and right perspective. And then in the very next moment, when somebody's offended us and insulted us and wronged us, then we're angry and it clouds our judgment and we speak words we shouldn't speak and we do things we shouldn't do. And that's what happens to David here. Enter Abigail, the faithful wife. We have Nabal, the foolish farmer, David, the furious soldier, and now Abel, Abigail, the faithful wife. Where Nabal's name meant fool, Abigail got a much better name. Her name means joy of the father. And if you've named your daughter Abigail, you've chosen a good name. One of Nabal's servants hears about David's plan, or maybe he sees David and his 400 men marching from afar off. He's like, uh-oh. So he goes not to Nabal. He goes to the sensible one. He goes to Nabal's wife, Abigail, and alerts her to the situation. In verse 17, it says, they, the servant tells Abigail, Now, therefore, know and consider what you will do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his household. 
for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. Abigail is said in verse 3 to be a woman of, of good understanding and beautiful appearance. That's great when you're a man or woman and you have those things both together. And she had that. And she springs into action. She's an amazing person. She, she springs into action to save everyone. And she does a few things to bring peace to the situation. First of all, she prepares food. David is upset because Nabal wouldn't share the food with him. And so she prepares a lot of food for him. It says in verse 18, Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five sias of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. Maybe a little overkill here, but she's, what she's doing is meeting a felt need. You know, I think that's a way to be, bring peace to a difficult situation. And my wife and I just want to say thank you so much to all of you who have provided meals to our family of a currently expanded, expanded family of 11. And we're so thankful for everyone who's brought in food. And it can certainly bring a measure of peace to uh, a people who receive such gifts. Now, I don't know about fig cakes, um, but I do know that super fudge brownie ice cream is an excellent food to bring to a pregnant wife. Men, take note of that. So next time there's some unrest, some contention, some anger, maybe one of the things you can do is like what Abigail did. Meet a felt need, maybe with food. Bring food to the person. Secondly, when she approaches David and she doesn't know what David's going to do to her, David's so angry with his men, but she runs down there on the donkey and, and gets there before David. And the second thing she does besides present the food to David is she humbly acknowledges the offense. Verses 23 to 25. When Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed down to the ground. So she fell at his feet and said, On me, Lord, on me let this iniquity be. Please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. And you just notice that she calls herself a humble maidservant six times. She refers to David as the Lord eight times. And then she often says the words, please. Wouldn't that go a long way in a difficult situation where someone is angry if we respond this way in a humble, gentle way? As Proverbs 15:1 says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. That's a very true proverb, isn't it? In a harsh situation where people are angry at each other and the situation is escalating, when one person would speak a soft, gentle word, you can see how that can bring down the, the escalation of temperament in a difficult situation. And that's what Abigail does. And she's very respectful, she's very humble, and she acknowledges the wrong thing that happened. Just think if we implemented those principles into our conversations of conflict with humility, acknowledging the wrong done in the situation, and being respectful. And then the third thing she does, the last thing she does, is she reminds David of truth he already knows. She speaks truth from God to him to help him regain a proper perspective on the situation. In verses 26 to 31, Abigail says to David, Now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, 
since the Lord has kept you from murdering and taking vengeance into your own hands, let all your enemies and those who try to harm you be as cursed as Nabal is. And here is a present that I, your servant, have brought to you and your young men. Please forgive me if I have offended you in any way. The Lord will surely reward you with a lasting dynasty, for you are fighting the Lord's battles. And you have not done wrong throughout your entire life. Even when you are chased by those who seek to kill you, your life is safe in the care of the Lord your God, secure in his treasure pouch. But the lives of your enemies will disappear like stones shot from a sling. When the Lord has done all he promised and has made you leader of Israel, don't let this be a blemish on your record. Then your conscience won't have to bear the staggering burden of needless bloodshed and vengeance. And when the Lord has done these great things for you, please remember me, your servant. See, Abigail reminds David that he's in the care of the Lord. He always has been, and he can, and always will be in the care of the Lord. And one day, and she reminds him that one day he will be leader of Israel. He will be the king. And she appeals to him that when he becomes king, he's not going to want to have a time like this on his hands when he has to look back and regret the blood he took of Nabal and his household. Reminding others of truth from God and helping them regain a proper perspective of a situation is a way to be a peacemaker, isn't it? And we have the Word of God, the Bible, the truth, the very words of God that we are to use and share with others in a difficult situation, whether it's a troubled marriage or somebody's been wronged or a wayward child or whatever the difficult situation is, the Word of God always has truth and perspective that we need. And so when we're in a conflict situation like this, we meet a felt need like Abigail did, bringing food. We can speak humbly and respectfully, and we can speak the truth of the Word of God. Those three things Abigail does, and we see David's response and the aftermath of it, and Abigail's actions and words penetrated his heart. This furious warrior bent on wiping out the household of Nabal, his heart has now been softened by the soft generous, wise, gracious words of Abigail. And his anger subsides. Abigail goes home, but can't tell Nabal about what happened till the next day, because he's too drunk that day. But then the next day, when she does tell Nabal about it, verse 37 says that Nabal's heart died within him, and he became like a stone. Then it happened after about ten days that the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. Apparently, most commentators agree that Nabal had some sort of stroke upon hearing the news. Maybe it was a stroke in response to hearing about, I was almost wiped out by this army of David. Or maybe it was a stroke in response to Abigail giving away some of his possessions of food to David and being so upset about that. We don't know for sure, but he's struck by the Lord, it says. The Lord struck Nabal, and he died ten days later. And David praised God for handling the situation. Just like Romans 12 says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord, and the Lord will repay the Nabals of this world one day. We can always trust in his sovereignty, in his timing, in his control, his way to sort things out. We don't have to take matters into our own hands when we're wronged in this, and insulted in this world. So when David heard that Nabal was dead, verse 39, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. And David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as his wife. 
When the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her, saying, David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. Then she arose, bowed her face to the earth, and said, Here is your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. So Abigail rose in haste and rode on a donkey, attended by five of her maidens, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David, Abigail was an incredible, godly woman, an example for us all today. You know, we're always going to have the Nabals of the world to test us, aren't we? Sometimes God allows Nabals in our life, I think, to test our heart, to reveal to us our own heart. How maybe we're think, we might think we're godly, and if a troubled situation were to come up, a situation of conflict, we could handle that. We would be godly and respond godly in the situation, wouldn't we? But then sometimes God allows that Nabal in our life to insult us, to wrong us, to speak some harsh words to us and treat us wrong, just so that maybe he could reveal to us in our own heart what's really there and teach us and help us to learn and grow from that situation. There will always be Nabals to test us. But then God gives us the opportunity to be Abigails in the world, people who are peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. They are called children of God. Are you a peacemaker this morning? Do you have the heart of an Abigail, the heart of a peacemaker? One who will rise to action like Abigail did, even in a difficult situation, a perilous situation even, and come prepared with a gentle heart, come prepared to speak the truth of God, come prepared to meet a felt need, whatever it takes to bring peace to a situation. You know, this reminds me that Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. We're like the Nabal, the fool who has said in his heart, there is no God. That's the sinner. That's the man in his natural condition. We are born sinners into the world, and we've offended God, who is a holy and righteous God. We're the Nabal, the fool. And then we have a God who is a loving God, but he's also a God of wrath, we're told in the Bible, who will judge sin one day. He's a righteous judge, and he will judge it perfectly, but he will judge and punish sin one day. He's like the furious warrior, David. But then enter Jesus, the ultimate peacemaker like Abigail, who came down and interceded as a perfect mediator between the vengeful, wrathful God who has righteous anger against our sin and us, the fool, the sinner. And Jesus stood in the place he met the need. He paid the price on the cross of Calvary to satisfy the wrath of God, paying that debt with his own life. We're the ones who have wronged God, and we could never do enough righteous works to repay and make up for that, but there is one who did and who can, and that's the Lord Jesus who stood between the sinner and the holy God and made that perfect sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. He is the ultimate peacemaker. He's the one who satisfied God's wrath, and in love he offers salvation to those all over the world so that no longer we're Nabal, a fool, a sinner, but we can be called children of God because of the peace we can have with God through his son, the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this beautiful story kind of tucked away in 1 Samuel 25 here. And what rich truths it brings out to us in the story of Nabal, the foolish farmer, who we can identify with as sinners. We've offended you, Lord. We've wronged you. 
We're alienated from you. We deserve your wrath and judgment because we are fools. We're sinners. And Lord, we praise you for being a holy and righteous God. Things don't always seem to go right on this earth. Things don't always seem to get judged rightly. The justice system is broken many times. And yet one day we know there's a day coming when the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, you, Lord, will bring justice to the earth and everything will be done right. But Lord, as sinners, that's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And so we thank you for the peacemaker, your son, the Lord Jesus, who died on the cross, making a full payment for our sins, that we could be reconciled to you, that we could have peace with you. And no longer are you looking down on us sinners as in your anger and in your wrath, but in your great love as children of God, because we have put our faith in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in him we have life. We thank you for that now, and as we take the bread and the cup, these symbols remind us of that great price that was paid. And we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. In his name, amen. You know, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we invite you to join us in remembering him this morning. Uh, to come up to one of the tables and take the bread and the cup. If you've never put your trust and your faith in Jesus, uh, we invite you to do that today. To accept the sacrifice and the payment that Jesus has made for us.